what's up, y'all? Let's go. Welcome to the Maximize Your Social Podcast. Follow me. Discover the latest social media marketing techniques from the world's leading experts. From top to bottom. This is the podcast where business professionals come together to master social media without all the confusing mumbo jumbo. With no further ado, turn it up. Here's your host, the one and only Neil Schaefer. Hey, everybody. This is Neil Schaefer. And today we have a very special guest, Eric Dahan from Open Influence. Those of you that know me know that Open Influence and I recently co-wrote a book on influencer marketing and how artificial intelligence is going to revolutionize the influencer marketing industry. And today we wanted to offer that ebook was a look into the future. Today we want to look at influencer marketing in the here and now and answer a lot of questions that a lot of you marketers ask about how to improve your influencer marketing programs. Eric, thanks for uh, hopping on the interview today. Of course. Thank you for having me. All righty. So we'll just get started here. We, we like to make these interviews uh, uh, you know, quick and painless. Instead of dragging on for an hour, we try to keep it within 15 or 20 minutes. So I've thought of a few questions based on what I often get asked, Eric. And uh, So let's just go through them and, and see where the conversation goes. So I guess the, the first question is, Brands struggle with the marketing mix, and brands are always in this traditional world of whenever there's something new that comes around, they never invest enough in it. So let's look at, you know, compared to other marketing channels that are out there, how powerful is influencer marketing? And does it have the potential, you know, in certain industries to be the most powerful channel uh, for brands out of all the different ways they can spend their marketing budget. Yeah, yeah. So influencer marketing is an extremely powerful form of marketing, right? There's a reason why it's really organically taken off uh, with the early adopters being a lot of the direct-to-consumer e-commerce brands that have built their business solely off influencers. I, I like to think that the ad industry really does a good job, actually, of vetting new channels and new forms of marketing, right? They start off with experimental budgets. Those experimental budgets turn into test budgets. Those test budgets turn into bigger test budgets and so on and so forth until, you know, that new channel or form of marketing has been able to really convey that it not only has strong returns that it could generate, but also consistency and scalability, and so what we saw is a lot of the early adopters being in the e-commerce space, in the fashion space uh, of influencer marketing that bit, built their business solely on it, you know, at a time when metrics weren't as clear or the industry wasn't as mature as it is today, uh, they were able to roughly track what the, that lift was and what the return was because it was converting into sales. Uh, you fast forward to today, we have a lot more granularity in how we can measure the effectiveness of an influencer campaign uh, and and essentially uh, an individual influencer. So it sounds like what you're saying is we're already beyond the experiment, the test, the pilot. We're, we're almost uh, at the emergence of influencer marketing as, as a mainstream marketing channel, correct? Because of the availability of, of data, of past ROI, uh, you know, success stories and what have you. Yeah, definitely, right? I, I, I think... You know, the reasons why influencer marketing is so successful is pretty straightforward. You know, there's so much information out there. There's so many ads out there. We're being bombarded by ads wherever we go, right? We go to a website. There are a whole series of banner ads and click ads that we run into. 
you know, even if you're in New York City riding the subway, there are ads everywhere, there are billboards everywhere. So we've gotten really good at tuning out advertisements. Uh, and so it makes sense that when you have an influencer that you're already following, you're already consuming the content they create, uh, when they, you know, integrate uh, a piece of branded content with with their with their normal content stream, uh, it, it just resonates a lot better, right? It has the social validation. Uh, the content is integrated and has a much higher quality than just a normal ad. And so you see it converting a lot higher, right? And you know, brands understood the theory that was the thesis that uh, the industry was really testing out. And brands now have proven that thesis through essentially this trial by fire going through all the different test phases. So I would say now uh, influencer marketing has really become uh, a line and budget uh, for virtually all advertisers, some making it, you know, core and front and center to their business. Others just having it being a, a key part of the marketing mix. Awesome. So um, th- that's all it really sets the stage, I think, for uh, the, the remaining question. So, you know, we can assume that everybody listening to this already has an influencer marketing program or has already invested in influencer marketing because that's what the data is showing us. So the next question comes, uh, you know, often about the types of influencers that brands should be investing in or working with or, or aligning with. So, you know, you have a lot of different terminology. You have, you know, micro influencers. You have the power middle. You have celebrities. Um, you know, when you work with a brand, how do you sort of help them define what type of influencer in terms of their, their following that they should be working with? Or do you have a completely different approach to answering that question? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, at the end of the, of the day, um, you know, there's no one size fits all strategy, right? Um, from a very simple level, you, you have three components, right? You have the message, the messenger, and the audience. And all those three things have to be aligned to have something really resonate uh, and be effective. And so first, you know, the first step is really understanding with a brand, what are they trying to say and who are they trying to reach, right? So what's the message and who's the audience? And then from there, it comes up to selecting the right messenger, being the influencer to deliver that message. And so it could range, right? And, and it depends on the goals as well. So, so picking the right type of messenger depends on what exactly is being communicated. Of course, again, back to the audience side, but then in terms of size of the influencer, whether we're talking, you know, more of a social celebrity, what we call a short tail uh, influencer or a micro influencer, what we call long tail influencer, uh, that really depends on the more specific goal. And to give you an example, you'll work with a social celebrity if you're really looking to build some cachet, have someone uh, that could really be an ambassador or face to the brand. Uh, the issue is with that, it's expensive and there's also risk tying your brand to a brand ambassador. We've seen countless times uh, brands that have partnered with celebrities for endorsements only to have the celebrity have some sort of scandal that blew back on the brand. On the micro-influencer side, you know, micro-influencers are really touted as being uh, you know, some of the most effective, which there, there's a lot of truth in that, right? Their engagement rates are higher. Uh, they have a tighter core audience. Uh, they're, you know, they're less expensive to work with, uh, on a, you know, cost per post basis. Um, the issue that, that most people don't understand that are new to the industry is there's a certain amount of work 
uh, and to engage with those kind of influencers. And typically a lot of that work is on the brand side with them just approving those influencers or communicating or liaising with those influencers or contracting them, uh, enforcing quality control, all the different things, uh, a lot of which can be automated, a lot of which cannot. And so sometimes, depending on your strategy and depending on what you're trying to, the content you're trying to create, the juice isn't worth the squeeze working with micro-influencers. You actually end up paying a lot more on a cost-per-view basis, on a cost-per-engagement basis. So that's what we tend to see in our industry, the sweet spot really being in the mid-tail, and that tends to be sort of the, the you know, sort of a standard for a lot of brands. The mid-tail are, are influencers, you know, that – aren't necessarily social celebrities, but, you know, have sort of outgrown uh, being a micro-influencer. So your, your cost per metrics, again, are much better. Uh, I, I can't really give exact ranges because it's different per industry. Uh, sure. But, you know, a kind of rule of thumb ballpark for a mid-tail influencer would be anyone with 50,000 to, you know, 500,000 followers on their primary platform. Gotcha. So, so if you're asking what type of influence you should be engaging with, you really need to start back with that strategy, I, I think, is the, is the main message. And so true. Uh, you know, marketers want to look for shortcuts uh, and look for formulas, right? Uh, and with working with influencers, as, as you know best, uh, you really need this holistic approach, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And an example would be like, let's talk about an automotive brand, right? There's no such thing as a really a quote-unquote automotive influencer. I mean, yes, there are influencers that talk about cars, but realistically, if you're a car brand, the way you're going to market your pickup trucks are completely different than the way you're going to market your minivans, right? And so if you think about it from that context, the influencer set is going to be completely different. The social platforms you're going to work on are going to be completely different. And so you really want to figure out, again, who's the audience, what are you trying to communicate, and then the messenger comes last. Awesome advice. Thank you very much. Let's uh, let's move on to the next question. So uh, I, I think we've already seen potential for the mistakes that brands make when engaging with influencers or when uh, creating or managing influencer marketing campaigns. In your opinion, uh, you know, with Open Influence, you've, you've worked with countless numbers of, of brands and influencers and, and engaged with campaigns. What is sort of the low-hanging fruit that you see that you think brands can immediately improve upon? Yeah, I, I mean, one of the, I would say, the most common mistakes brands make, and, and the savvy advertisers have actually picked up on this, uh, which is good, but they focus more on talent and names rather than metrics, right? So... Mm -hmm. A lot of decision-making is still very subjective. I follow these influencers personally. I want to work with them versus, hey, which influencer based on their metrics is going to perform the best for my brand? Which influencer is going to have the best metrics from a, a cost per standpoint or conversion standpoint for my audience? And so a, a lot of marketers, unfortunately, are focusing on the wrong things in some cases. Uh, another mistake uh, brands and marketers make they think influencers are, you know, they treat them like programmatic ad units or, you know, a little bit better sometimes like Uber drivers, right? They right. think, okay, I'll engage with this influencer. They'll pick me up at point A. They'll take me to point B, no problem whatsoever. It doesn't work like that, right? It's not a utilitarian product like going, you know, 10 blocks away in an Uber, right? It's, there's content being created. Influencers are personalities, uh, there are a lot of moving parts, right? There's subjectivity always when it comes to content. There, and so 
if you don't plan, it's one of those things. If you if you don't plan for those aspects of the process, you find yourself, you know, essentially doing ten times the work because you're back you're backtracking and you're redoing and you're reshooting. And so a big part of what we do is we know that these are parts of the process. We know that there are certain parts that we can't fully automate, but what we do is we build it in so that we're able to really account for it throughout. So, for example, content approval is something that you don't want to necessarily do in an automated fashion. Um, but we make sure it's easy because influencers can upload multiple pieces of content according to the brief, and we're then able to go through, and our clients are able to go through and approve the best ones and even comment further on the ones that they approve to make the last-minute tweaks and adjustments, whether it's the text or to the image or video itself. And so these are the sort of things that are key. Another more, more concrete example there is, let's say we're doing an ad for Under Armour and the influencer is drinking a Starbucks, right? We don't want the focus in that piece of content to be on the Starbucks cup. We want it to be on the Under Armour clothing. And so our team will go through and airbrush out the Starbucks logo. And unfortunately for Starbucks, I think we've actually removed more Starbucks ads than we've created uh, over the course of our time here. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you brought up that treating influencers as, as uh, you know, ad units, because I, I see a lot of that from the other end of brands saying, you know, we want you to post. It has to be an Instagram story, only three frames. You must look at this product in this store, but feel free to be creative. Um, so it's uh, it's funny the boundaries uh, that brands put on influencers and, and trying to treat them as ad units, as you say. So uh, thanks for bringing that up. It's it's really funny, actually. Sometimes I'm, I'm sure you've seen some funny ones as well. Oh yeah, definitely. All right, so let's look at another thing that um, that I know that you have a very very strong opinion on, uh, which are influencer marketplaces. So uh, influencer marketplaces. If you do a search for influencer marketing on Google you're bound to run into these marketplaces. And sometimes they look like they're tools, but they're really tools to access a marketplace. Other times they're just pure marketplaces, meaning that uh, they offer a database of influencers and allow you to contact them and and, and what have you. Um, And it's really funny because a lot of them reach out to me as well. And when you enter yourself as an influencer in these marketplaces, they're basically saying, hey, give us a bio, let us, you know, authorize your accounts. But categorize yourself. Sometimes they give you like a maximum of five categories. And because I do more B2B influence marketing, I rarely see like a business category, right? It's always like technology or news. Um, but why do you think they do that, Eric? And is it a best practice? And really, you know, what, what is your advice for brands that are still spending a lot on influencer marketplaces when they may be missing out on the bigger picture because of the way that they work? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm actually not a fan of the influencer marketplace model. A lot of these companies treat it like, you know, an influencer displays a price, brands go on, uh, search some categories, select the influencer, engage. I don't think that model generates a lot of value for advertisers. Uh, the reason why my co-founders and I, you know, we have our backgrounds in, in economics. And so, you know, believe me when I say, we love nothing more than dynamic marketplaces and being able to extract efficiencies with transparency. The issue we found with a lot of these marketplaces is influencer pricing is all over the map. Uh, it, it really builds out an incentive scheme 
and and it allows for influencers to overcharge customers and over anchor pricing uh, rather than putting the power uh, on the demand side, which is the advertiser side, to help drive pricing down. And so, you know, I think the right approach is identifying the right influencers and then shopping from those influencers, having them compete against one another uh, for opportunities. And that's a really good forcing function for driving, you know, cost down and value up. But the other issue that, that I, that I have with, with a lot of those companies, and I'd like to say probably virtually every other company in the space is, is how they're categorizing talent. So, one of the challenges we saw early on, uh, we did what, you know, what everyone else started doing and we're early to the industry. So we're able to, to see the downsides of it first. But, uh, we've categorized influencers in these really predefined verticals, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, you'd bucket the influencers in either beauty or fashion or automotive or business or whatnot. And, you know, that's fine if you have a very finite set of influencers. But once once we started scaling, we encountered a ton of issues. One was there was a lot of subjectivity. You know, if we were categorizing the influencers internally, the different people would categorize, different people on our side would categorize the same influencer differently, right? So, you know, you have a blog, you're, you know, a quote-unquote business author, right? Even though you have your own areas of focus within that, right? Business is a very broad category, but like, you know, you might also have a pet. You might also be into fitness, right? You're playing, you know, you play soccer, you play other sports. And so, you know, depending on the most recent content that talent coordinator was was looking at of yours, they might categorize you differently. So it's not that black or white in terms of what bucket you'd fall into. And so that's a big challenge. It's just as subjective if you're categorizing yourselves, right? Well, yourself. Well, we saw with a, a lot of influencers when we gave them categories, every single influencer was a high luxury influencer. And we're like, <laughs> all right, right? And, and every influencer was a fitness influencer, a food influencer. Most of them had pets, so they're pet influencers. And we're like, no, no, no. You know, so, so there's a lot of bias there. And yes, there are ways to tweak for that and, and to sort of narrow it down, but it, it's overall pretty sloppy. In your category business, you know, business can mean a thousand different things. Uh, it's an extremely broad category. And so if I'm looking for someone who's an expert in social media and influencer marketing, if I'm looking through business for that, well, there's going to be a lot of noise before I find you, Neil, right? I'm sure, going sure. to probably have to comb through, you know, 5,000, 10,000 other profiles, and most of which are irrelevant. And I still don't get a good sense for who they are. And, and, and a lot of those platforms have a, a Rolodex approach, which is like, hey, here's here's the influencer, here's a headshot, and here's some basic stats. It's like, well, thank you, but I can't do anything with this information as a marketer. Um, and so the approach we've taken is we removed all the subjectivity and the bias, we remove all the noise, and rather than going after these categories that are very arbitrary and really don't mean anything, we look at individual keywords, we analyze each piece of content that you create so that we can say, okay, I want to find an influencer marketing expert and I could run a search and have you pop up top of that list because you're extremely relevant to that category. Right. So, you know, in all fairness, I obviously work with with a lot of different companies and I know a lot of marketplaces that are out there uh, and some of the CEOs of them. And they also have very successful case studies of, of how their clients generated ROI. So 
I suppose that for those brands that have only worked with marketplaces, uh, yep. while they might have had successes, uh, they should definitely be looking at it the other way of working with an open influence to see what the differences in the ROI might be, and, and they might be surprised by that, correct? Yeah, I mean, correct. Yeah, and, and not not to shoot down the marketplace model too much. I mean, there are companies that are able to perform and do well and compensate for it, but, you know, we started as a marketplace as well very early on, right. and we've evolved it because there are definitely inherent shortcomings into the model, right? And so a lot of marketplaces have their way of retrofitting and overcoming it. And of course, there are ways to generate ROI, but we really believe that in the direction things are going, um, you know, it, we wouldn't be doing our job if we weren't thinking 10 steps ahead of where the industry is going and holding ourselves to a higher standard than, than the market's holding ourselves to. Gotcha. Great. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll have a rebuttal uh, podcast after this one, but uh, it's definitely food for thought. And obviously, like I said, uh, there, there's just a lot of noise in the market, but think ahead uh, and you'll see, hopefully you've already downloaded and read how AI is revolutionary, revolutionizing influencer marketing and you'll begin to uh, fully understand what Eric is talking about here. So I, I wanted to finish this with you know, one final question. You know, we've talked and when we talked about uh, in the creation of the ebook, this friction between supply and demand, and you mentioned how you're all uh, have economist backgrounds and, and we talked about marketplaces. So um, with this friction of supply and demand, um, you know, what do marketers need to know about it and where should they be focusing their efforts going forward? So like any industry, like any business, you have supply and demand that are the driving forces, uh, you know, that determine pricing, that determine market dynamics. Historically, the talent business has been a supply side driven business, which means the talent has been the customer, the main customer, and has been the one holding a lot of power. And what does that look like? That looks like a handful of talent agencies representing all the celebrities out there. Um, right. So if you want to work with the top tier talent, you go through a talent agency and there's nothing wrong with, with talent agencies. Right. Their model is excellent for, for the talent they represent. Um, you're dealing with, you know, a top-level celebrity, You and, and you are a top-level celebrity, you want to make sure you have an agent that's there for you and a manager that's there for you looking after your best interest because there's just so many brands and so many opportunities that you can take. You need someone who can manage that and procure the right business for you. But in today's world, with the emergence of social media, with the emergence of mobile native uh, social platforms, you open the door to, you know, from a handful of celebrities to now hundreds of thousands and millions of people becoming, you know, influencers. Um, so what does that mean? You have a huge increase in supply. And those influencers, uh, you know, aren't big enough perhaps to have a dedicated agent or manager. And so, you know, it's allowed for a shift to happen to the demand side being, you know, uh, the advertiser, right? The advertiser is the one with the budget. The advertiser now has the ability to really more so dictate what it, what it is they want. And so that shift in supply and demand or, or from being weighted heavily on the supply side to the, to the demand side has allowed for uh, a change in model, has allowed for uh, a shift from, you know, for the bulk of influencers from being from, uh, uh, you know, a, a management and representation business to, uh, you know, a, more of a media buying business, right? And essentially, it's also allowed for a big shift selling away from cachet to selling against metrics. So, 
uh, and buying against metrics. And what I mean by that is you're not going out and procuring a talent because there's some big name, right? The old way of PR companies working with, with celebrities is they purely do it based on who that celebrity was, right? You're going to work with George Clooney because he's famous throughout. You don't need to look at his stats. You know who, what his stats are like. You know he's a household name. And you fast forward to today's world, there's so many influencers out there. You don't really, you're not really looking at who the individual names are. Um, there's so much interchangeability. You're looking at the metrics, right? And so because there's so much interchangeability, you as an advertiser have a lot more choice of who you can work with. You're not stuck to working with one or a handful of, of influencers for your brand. You now have hundreds to thousands that you can possibly engage with at a given time. And so that's, you know, that was really sort of the driving force and the reason why influencer marketing emerged now rather than, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So really, I, I don't want to use the word or, or say that influencers are becoming like commodities. Um, but as that supply grows and you mentioned that interchangeability, the only way to choose going forward really is based on that data, right? Yeah, it's based on the data. And the difference is, you know, it's, it's not, it's not commoditized. I mean, fully like you would like uh, in a programmatic ad unit, right? The sense is it, it, it's, there, there's no real set price, right? It's not like, it's not like you're, you know, buying or selling gold on an exchange, right? Or on, on a, you know, on, on a marketplace where, you know, there's a clear marketplace that's set for it. Um, and so influencer pricing really fluctuates, right? An influencer could drastically change their price depending on other opportunities they have, depending on the relationship they have with you, depending on, um, you know, what are the terms that you're asking for. And so there are all these different variables that really affect an influencer's price because influencers are people and for them, they don't really have a high cost structure, right? They have their cost, right. essentially their living expenses, but they don't have any cost of goods sold associated with what they're selling. They could be flexible on cost structure. Their inventory is not, you know, is not completely specifically limited, right, to a certain number. They can do more or less as they please. So there are a lot of aspects there that really keep it from being treated from a commoditized standpoint. The other aspect that's really important with this industry is, you know, an ad isn't an ad, right? An influencer sponsorship isn't an influencer sponsorship. You're not playing, paying for placement. You're paying for content creation and, and placement or and distribution. And so it's not like you're saying, I'm uploading this piece of creative that I already have. Go place it across a bunch of different channels. I'll measure performance. There's a real qualitative aspect to the content being created. And so there's a lot of uniqueness with everything being done. But at the same time, you could boil everything down on the macro scale to, to metrics and to, you know, and, and they will fall subject to, to market forces at the end of the day. Right. That's really great advice. Hopefully, uh, as you're listening to this, it's really sort of expanded your horizons and made you think a little bit differently about influencer marketing. And obviously, as your budgets uh, grow, um, that's where you're going to see significant impact by following all the advice that, that Eric has given us uh, compared to the old ways of, of doing influencer marketing. So, Eric, I know we're, we're short on time today. I want to thank you for your time. Any final notes or final advice uh, for our listeners? No, but I guess they could reach out to us, and we'll be happy to answer any questions. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, Open Influence, they're, they're a global company. They have offices throughout the world. They're, they're great people. I, I love working with them. I highly recommend you reach out to them. If you're looking to take your uh, influencer marketing to the next level, or even if you just want to do a reset on your entire program, they'll, they're a great resource. So, Eric, once again, thank you for your time. 
everybody, I hope you enjoyed the show and stay tuned for the next show after this one. Wherever you are in the world, make it a great day. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Maximize Your Social Podcast. Major key alert. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show on iTunes so others can enjoy it too. Give us some of that. To continue the conversation and empower your business through social media, visit neilschafer.com. Right now. Have a great week. Let's go. And we'll see you on the next episode.